This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. The scripture reading from today is from Acts 5, verses 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know about you, but uh, I am thrilled when our young adults uh, lead us in worship. It is great, Jonathan, to have you and your team here. That is wonderful. I'll tell you, it is good, good stuff. Well, it is good to see everyone here post-Easter. And uh, what a great, great day of worship we had uh, last Easter Sunday. And I don't know about you, but some of those songs are still, uh, they just are reverberating and and I've heard them all week long as uh, I continue to celebrate the resurrection and the life that is ours through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, good, good stuff. So this morning, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. We took a little break before Easter, but now we're going to pick up uh, our study uh, again in chapter 5. But I want to begin by telling you a story about a man named George Owen Walton. Anybody know about George Walton? Yeah, you heard of him, maybe? Okay. Well, he was born in 1907 in Rocky Mountain, Virginia. And George grew up to be an estate appraiser, which means that when he went to appraise people's estates, he had access to some very, very valuable collections. Uh, he saw collections of coins, of, of firearms, of various kinds of antiques, and uh, he enjoyed that work. But periodically, he would see something that would catch his eye, and uh, he would buy it for himself. And so on one occasion, he had the opportunity to buy one of only five 1913 Liberty Head nickels that were ever minted. And uh, when he had the chance, he jumped at it. Now, it was 1945, and he paid $3,750 for that 1913 uh, Liberty Head nickel. People thought he was nuts. But he told his family, I'm telling you something, this coin is going to be worth a fortune. You wait and see. Well, he took his coin with him in 1962 and he was driving to a coin show because he wanted to have it appraised. And he was killed, tragically, in an automobile accident. But they found the coin and eventually it made its way to appraisers who looked at it, they studied it, and they said, this coin has no value at all. It's worthless. And they gave it back to his family. Well, you can imagine what the family must have thought. Oh, gosh, you know, I wonder what he was thinking. He spent all that money back in 1945, and now we have this worthless coin. And so the coin went in a box and went into the closet until years later, 
it was passed on to George's nephew, a man named Ryan Gibbons. And in 2003, Ryan read a news report that four Liberty Head Nichols, 1913 Liberty Head Nichols, were on display. Four of the five originally minted. And the collectors that had put it on a display were offering a million dollars if someone could find the missing fifth coin. Now, Ryan remembered stories of what his uncle had said. So he got the box that had been given to him out of the closet. He removed the coin and he took it to have it appraised. This time, the appraisers looked at the coin, they studied the coin, and lo and behold, his uncle, George Walton, who had purchased a coin way back in 1945 for $3,750, he was correct. It was the fifth of the five coins to complete the collection. And uh, the coin that was purchased in 1945 for $3,750, um, well, <laughs> Ryan uh, got the small sum of million for the coin. (laughs) Imagine a coin worth more than $3 million collecting dust in the back corner of a closet for decades and decades because it seemed worthless in the eyes of some experts. Imagine that. You know, today as we move into Acts chapter 5, Um, we are going to see what some scholars call the fine print of Christianity. And what's the fine print of Christianity? Well, up into the first four chapters of Acts, we've seen the church. It's been growing. Great things are happening. The apostles are performing signs and wonders. There are miracles taking place. People from all over Jerusalem are coming. There are thousands of people that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, becoming followers of Jesus. But then we begin to see a transition that takes place in the chapter 4 and chapter 5. And here's the transition. The church begins to experience struggle from the inside out. You might recall in chapter 5 we uh, talked about Ananias and Sapphira. And how they had sold property and they had gone and they had gone and given the proceeds to uh, the apostles to be distributed as people needed it. But uh, they projected that they had given all the money. And so they were dishonest. They weren't being truthful. And of course, you remember that both Ananias and Sapphira uh, died. They were struck down and they were carried out. And uh, boy, that really got people's attention. And we see the emphasis here that the Spirit of God was moving among those first believers and impressing upon them the importance of purity, of godliness, of holiness. Uh, That deception, that hypocrisy, um, that all those things threaten the unity of the body of Christ. And so as this new group of believers were coming together, uh, the Spirit of God impressed upon them, hey, listen. To go to the places where you're going to go and do the things that that God wants you to do, uh, you have to pay attention to your lives and to keep this fellowship together against the pressure that's coming from the outside in, we need to be right with God, totally right with God. There needs to be holiness in the body of Christ. And that's where we left off. 
And now, as we move further into chapter 5, beginning in uh, 5.12, we see something happening. We see pressure now really being exerted from the outside into the church. And you might recall how the disciples, Peter and John, had been sharing about Jesus, and the religious leaders had called them in and said, Listen, don't you ever do anything in this man's name again. They were forbidden essentially, to evangelize. So here we are now in chapter 5, and what's happening? They are gaining favor with the people. In fact, the Scripture begins in this portion of, chap- uh, of the chapter by saying that, that people in the church and outside of the church were in great awe over what had happened. And what was that awe? Uh, the story of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, people's jaws dropped. And what began to happen is there were people on the outside that, that knew that if they were going to become a follower of Jesus, that they had to be serious about it. Uh, because the holiness of God is nothing to mess around with. And you're being invited to come into and be a part of God's holy community of followers of Jesus. And so there were some that they looked from a distance. They really wanted to be a part of it. But they knew that, that if they were, they had to be serious about it. That's kind of the transition that takes place here. But then it said, despite that, more and more men and women, they said, yeah, we know that. We know the seriousness of this decision and the implications of it, that God calls us to live a holy, obedient life, but we want that. And more and more and more became followers. And uh, word got out and began to spread throughout Jerusalem again. And what did people begin to do? They began to bring their sick. They began to be people that were, were demon-possessed. And uh, there were great miracles, signs, and wonders were taking place to the point where the Scripture says that people would even bring sick or lame people on stretchers, hoping that even Peter's shadow might fall upon them and they would be healed. And so there's a great move of God taking place here. A great move of God. But what happens? Well... The high priest and the, the ruling elders of, of the temple. They're seeing this, and the Scripture says that they began to, to just seethe with jealousy. In the, in the original language there, uh, what it really says is that they're overflowing with jealousy. Because they're seeing that the, uh, the apostles have great favor with the people. And they are perceiving that as a threat to their own power in the religious structure of Israel. Okay? That's what's going on. And so they, they have the captain of, of the temple guard go and seize them and put them in prison. And what you begin to see here now is this conflict between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of man is threatened by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of man uses earthly power. Right? In this case, it was the the political, religious system to try to prevail. So they're going to have them imprisoned. And then they're going to call them out and put them on trial. Frankly, they wanted to put them to death. Because they thought they were done with Jesus, right? And now here are Jesus' followers doing the same thing, but, but even more and more people are coming to faith. And so they're wanting to eliminate the problem. So they have them thrown in jail. 
And there, it's not just Peter and John now, it's all the apostles. They're all thrown in jail. What happens? Well, the power of the kingdom of man is, it can't stand up to the power of the kingdom of God. They're in jail and an angel of the Lord comes. And he releases them in the night. And he gives them instruction, you go out to the temple court and you proclaim the whole message of the gospel. You go do that. So what happens? At daybreak, first light, the apostles who had been thrown in jail, who had been released by the power of God, right? Prevailing power of God. They go out and they're preaching the gospel in the temple courts. And as they begin to preach the gospel in the temple courts, the crowds are making noise and and uh, the Sadducees, they're, they're thinking they're in jail and they say, hey, go get these guys, bring them back. The guards go to get them and they're not there. They're gone. The religious leaders say, I wonder what this means. And somebody says, hey, wait a minute, look. There they are. They're out in the temple courts and, and, and the crowds are there. And, 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 and wow, look at all this that's going on. And so then it says, they weren't quite sure what to do. So they sent the, the captain of the temple guard back out to seize them, but they didn't do it forcibly. Why? The scripture says, because they were feared that the people might stone the officials. Because the apostles had such popularity. People were being drawn to them, to the message of the gospel. So they come back and uh, they stand before the Sanhedrin and uh, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. We thought that we told you not to, to mention his name. In fact, they disdain Jesus so much they wouldn't even use the name of Jesus. You'll notice in your scripture, if you're following along in chapter 5, it just says, don't even mention his name. We told you not to mention or to do anything in his name. And then they went on to say, if you continue this, the people are going to think that his blood is upon us. We're going to look like we're to blame for what happened to Jesus. And then Peter speaking up for the rest of the apostles who were there present says these words. says, listen, we must obey God. Now, do you remember earlier when he was arrested and he and John stood before this same council? They said, hey, you know what? It's for you to decide whether we should obey God or man, but, but we're going to obey God. And so now, what's he doing? He's reemphasizing. He's speaking on behalf of the others, saying, hey, listen, we must obey God. And then he goes in and he presents again the message of the gospel proclaiming that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah. Huh, well, can you imagine? They went from overflowing with, with jealousy. Now, what's going on? It says that, that they become like violently angry and they want them put to death. That's it. We're done with these people. We want to end the problem once and for all. 
what happens. As the council convenes, they begin to talk about what to do. There's a man named Gamaliel. Now, he's a Pharisee. He's a part of this council. And he was the highly respected, most respected Pharisee teacher of the law of his time. In fact, did you know that he taught Saul of Tarsus, who was to become the Apostle Paul? If you wanted to sit under, like, the teacher of the day to learn the law, this was the guy. He was the one. All right? And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have something to tell you. He says, you know, in recent years, you might recall that there have been many leaders who have risen up and have had bands of followers. But you might recall that, you know, their popularity waned and and they were eventually killed and died. And their movements failed. And he cited a couple, a couple of those movements. And he said, I'll tell you what, leave these men alone. Leave them alone. Because if this is not of God, it's going to fail like all the other movements have failed. It'll just fail. It'll go away. But if it's not, then you don't want to find yourself in a position of fighting God. Of getting in the way of something God is doing. And so because he was so respected, they listened and kind of begrudgingly they said, well, all right, but we have to do something. So what do they do? They said, we're going to subject them to the lash. We're going to have them whipped. And uh, of course, in those days, the whip was made of uh, animal hide, had three prongs on it. And they would uh, whip twice across the back. Then they would turn the person and whip them once across the front. That would be three. And it would go in sets of three up to the number 39. Okay? So they were subjected to the lash 39 times. That's a deterrent, don't you think? Wouldn't you think, Brian? Would that be enough to deter someone? I might think. Now, if it were me, and uh, I was certain that the Lord had wanted me to, to proclaim the gospel and share my faith, uh, even though there were those who had threatened me and told me not to, if I had experienced something even as dramatic as an angel of the Lord releasing me from incarceration, setting me free to proclaim, and telling me, do this. And I did it, but I was brought before a council and then whipped 39 times. You know what my response might be? Perhaps it might be the same as yours. I might say, God, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. I'm being obedient to your word. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. Why in the world is this happening to me? This isn't right. This isn't fair, God. I'm not quite sure I want to do this. If the truth be known, I know for myself, maybe for you, I'd struggle to want to mention the name of Jesus publicly ever again. And I might be a little bit angry to God at God for for the results. After all, I'm just doing what he told me to do. And look what's happening to me. Right? 
But what do they do? And, and, and that's our verse today, our two verses. What is it that they end up doing? They do something that's quite unexpected. It says in verse 41 that the apostles left the Sanhedrin complaining about what had happened to them, angry at God, feeling like he had dealt with them unfairly because they were suffering for Jesus. Is that what it says? No, on the contrary. It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now in my Bible, name is in a capital N because it's the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. The name in which they had been proclaiming forgiveness of sin, right? The message of hope that comes from the gospel. It's in the name of Jesus. It's in the the name with a capital N that that they had gone out and, and that they had been healing everyone that had been brought to them from all around Jerusalem. It was in the name of Jesus that the demons had been cast out of people. In the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is a powerful name. It's a powerful name. And it solicits a powerful response. And in this case, the response of the religious leaders was the lash. But they rejoiced, counting it worthy of suffering, disgrace, if you will, for the name. So it was thought to be public disgrace for them was an honor. That they would be considered worthy of suffering as Jesus suffered. You might recall Jesus was subjected to the lash. And, and on the contrary, rather than thinking we must be doing something wrong because bad things are happening to us, it was the opposite. We must be doing something right because they're treating us like they treated our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Wow, what an honor. And you know for the first several hundred years of the church history that followers of Jesus considered it an honor to suffer, to be persecuted, to encounter hardship and difficulty for the name of Jesus. They didn't shy away from it. On the contrary, when the opportunity came, they lived into it. Now how different is that? And from what the, the attitude is, at least in the Western church today. We live in a culture and our, in our, in our church to some extent has, has, has taken on kind of the cultural view of hardship and difficulty and persecution and suffering. And when it happens in a righteous way, rather than rejoicing in it, we, we what? We question ourselves. Do we really want to do this? Is this really what we signed up for? That's why it's called the fine print of discipleship. Because if we read between the lines and we see this, it's a major theme in the book of Acts. Those familiar with the movement of Christ into the world in the early church, they knew it was to be expected. And they spoke the name anyway. (laughs) There are churches that you can go to today 
that will teach you that all you should expect from following Jesus is health, wealth, and prosperity. In fact, if something bad is happening to you, then there must be something wrong with what you're doing because you should only expect, quote, blessing. Okay? That's a false gospel. And some of us may subject ourselves. We may see that on TV. That's very popular. I'll tell you, it appeals. It tickles my ear. It's enough to want to have people fill basketball stadiums to go and hear it. But that's not what I read in Scripture. There's a, a scholar. His name is Aeth Fernando. He's a Christian leader and scholar from Sri Lanka who ministers there. And this is what he writes. The church in each culture has its own special challenges. Theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering, on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The, quote, good life, comfort, convenience, and the painless life have become necessities that people view as their basic rights as followers of Jesus. I'm telling you something. If these first followers of Jesus viewed that as their basic right, the church never would have left Jerusalem. If they they do not have comfort, convenience, and a painless life, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. For God intends that His church and His people grow through trials. Now, what we see here in the fifth chapter of Acts are three things that are evident in the lives of the apostles that that I think we ought to imitate. We ought to seek for our lives as followers of Jesus. Number one, they had an identification. What was their identification? Their identification was with the new life that they had in Jesus. They understood that they had an old life that was buried with Jesus. And they had a new life that rose with Him from the grave. And that they were determined to live the new life of resurrection power as Spirit-filled followers of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. They had an identification with new life. But they also had an identification... with his suffering and with his hardship. They remembered his teaching that said, you know, a a slave isn't greater than the master or the messenger, greater than the one who gives the message. They remembered that he said, if if you're going to follow me, you can expect this to happen to you because look what they did to me. Right? They remembered that. 
And so they identify with the new life, but as a part of that new life, they, they knew, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it's been granted for you not only to believe in His name, but what? To suffer in His name as well. They had, uh, I think, uh, an understanding that sometimes as a follower of Jesus, when we're following Him into the world, when we're living incarnationally, when we're going out to where people are and we are proclaiming the message of the gospel, there's going to be pushback. And sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. Now, our brothers and sisters on other continents and places in the world, they get that. They understand that. They live with that every single day. But somehow in the Western church, right, and our appetite for comfort, for the painless life, for a Christianity that doesn't offend, we expect something different. That's not what we see here. In fact, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they knew that they were counted worthy to live for Christ, to follow Him, and to experience and enter into His sufferings for His sake and for the sake of the gospel. But they also knew something else. They knew, they knew that there was a reward, that there was glory for that suffering. And they could count on it. They could look forward to it. And so they had that identification. The second thing they had was holiness. People who identify with Jesus, who identify with new life, People filled with the Spirit of God, the desire of their heart is to live in obedience to God. And when we live in obedience to God, there's a holiness in which we're set apart for God's purposes. Our lives reflect the life of Christ. We become conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's an identification. That identification leads to a change of life, to an obedient life, in which we're willing to go where God sends us, do what God asks us to do. Because we're transformed people. And he's conforming us more and more. There's holiness. And where there's holiness, there's power. A called people of God, submitted, fully identified with Christ, filled with His Spirit, are a people who experience the power of God in their lives. Now, maybe this doesn't apply to anyone here. But if it does, it's important you hear what I'm going to say. You want more power in your life. You want the power of the Spirit of God in your life. You want the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. You know where it starts? It starts with the words of Peter. (laughs) Well, I don't know, but we must obey God. We want our lives to look like the life of the one that we follow, Jesus. And when there's obedience, there's a submission to the Spirit of God in one's life, you can expect the power of God to be resident in an increasing way. 
Do you see the correlation of what's going here in Acts in chapter 5? There's identification with Jesus. There's holiness. And that holiness results in what? Power. And it is turning Jerusalem upside down. And people are coming in great numbers to Christ. The third thing, well, it's power. Identification, holiness, and power. Let me, let me share with you a story. It's called Cheering the Invisible Victory. On a balmy afternoon in 1982, way back then, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on Michigan State. But it soon became obvious that Michigan State had a better team. What seemed odd, however, as the score became more lopsided, there were outbursts of applause and shouts of joy from the Wisconsin fans. Kind of like what's happening here in Acts. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Their team's getting beat down. The, the, the apostles got beat down, and yet the apostles were rejoicing. Their team's getting beat down, yet they're rejoicing. Why? It didn't make sense. <laughs> well, it turned out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. Many of the fans in the stand were listening to their radios and responding to something other than their immediate circumstances. You see that? It's like the Apostle Paul who encourages us to, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. When we do, we can rejoice even in hardship because we're looking at a victory that's far off in a distance. But that victory is assured. And that's what is going on in our passage today. And that's the message for you and me. Now, when it was all said and done, Peter, as he's writing his epistle, and I can't help but think that he's not reflecting on this, on this very thing, these days of, of what God was doing here early in the church. He writes this in, in 1 Peter 4, 14 and 19. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And that's exactly what they did. Because as you read on here in verse 42, it says, and day after day in the temple courts and the house to house, they never stopped teaching, proclaiming the good news that is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what is true of them, may it be true of us as we move out into our world fully identified with Christ committed to living holy lives and ministering in the power of his name amen amen let's pray
Father, we thank you for the example of your word, for the lives of those who have gone before us, who, who call us out to live for something greater than ourselves and to understand that, that hardship and difficulty and persecution, when it's in your name for doing what you've asked us to do, living the gospel out loud in our world, Lord, that, that we can rejoice in that. For we know that there is a greater glory. For our temporary afflictions are nothing compared to the surpassing glory of what awaits us. And so, Father, I would pray that you would give us the courage and the strength. For some of us, you would call us to recommit ourselves to living for you. God, thank you that you are a great and wonderful God. And thank you that you have granted that we would believe in Jesus. And Lord, if necessary, that we would suffer for his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.